Welcome back, everyone, to the second session of A Sabbath of the Land for You, Shemitah, Ethics, and Jewish Philosophy with Ms. Sarah Zager and Ms. Renana Dine. Um, we ask that those of you joining us here on Zoom, please feel free to turn on your camera. We love looking around the room and having that nice pre-pandemic feel, uh, but do please keep yourself muted if you are not meaning to participate, if you are not meaning to share your sounds, just because life happens and sometimes the background noise can be amplified a good deal on Zoom. Feel free to, of course, share comments and questions when you're invited to by our teachers and use the chat function uh, to your heart's content. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, you're also welcome to add questions and comments below the video there, and I will migrate them over here so you can also participate. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're learning with us tonight. There isn't really a interactive element yet, <laughs> but maybe in the future. Uh, our educators have a preference for sharing the text on screen. So I think they will probably do that again tonight. Uh, otherwise, I will supply a link in the chat and also post to Facebook. So you're welcome to follow along independently. If you wanna have it on a separate screen, make it real, real big, even print it out if you're into that sort of thing, but do as you please. And without further ado, Ms. Zager, Ms. Dine, please take it away. Uh, well, first actually a, a tech question, which is some of us are in here as panelists and then there's one attendee who we cannot see. I don't know if there's a way that we can make sure that we can see everybody who is here. Yes, uh, as people come in, I will invite them to become panelists and I encourage okay. everyone to accept. <laughs> All right, so I guess we're gonna get started. Um, as, as Noah mentioned, I think I'm gonna share my screen um, and then we're gonna introduce tonight's topic. Hopefully everyone can see that. All right, so as we mentioned, you, uh, can you just zoom? Oh yes, zoom in so that it's like taking up more of the screen. How's that? Okay. Um, so as we mentioned last week, um, in our sort of introductory section, there are a lot of sort of clearly overlapping. Um, concerns or ideas between the concept of Shabbat and Shemitah, the idea of rest, the, the number seven, um, the word Shabbat comes up um, a fair amount in the description of, um, of Shemitah. So we want to spend this class thinking a little bit about how sort of uh, ethicists and philosophers have reflected on the concept of Shabbat and how it might be similar to Shemitah, how it might be different, how it might be connected. Um, I don't know, Sarah, do you have anything you want to add to that introduction before I go into the sources? Yeah, I think the main thing is really just to think about like, to what extent is, is Shabbat a good model and to what extent is Shabbat a misleading model? Um, and and I think we'll end up presenting some, some evidence on either side of that equation. Um, and hopefully then that will inform not only how you think about Shemitah, but also maybe like can help you reflect about things that Shabbat is and is not as you kind of move the analogy the other way. Okay, so probably the sort of most current famous um, sort of, I don't know, philosophical is the right word, but account of what Shabbat is and what it might be doing in our lives um, is Abraham Joshua Heschel's from 1951 in the book The Sabbath. So it's very much, this is only focused on Shabbat. And we want to take a little bit of time and think about what is his conception of Shabbat? Um, what's it doing in terms of space and time? Um, and also think about how um, this is the weekly Shabbat, which is meant for the entire Jewish people as individuals. Um, I know that there was a request to maybe have individuals read. Um, so I guess if someone is really excited about reading Hashal, you can either put up your hand. 
Since I made the suggestion, I go first. Okay, great. Okay. Um, I'm going to read from my screen here. Uh, okay. Um, the Sabbath, 1951. Well, the festivals celebrate events. Sorry, it's really popped on my screen here. Well, the festivals celebrate events that happen in time. The day of the month assigned for each festival in the calendar is determined by the life in nature. Passover and Sukkot, for example, coincide with the full moon. And the date of all festivals is a day in the month. And the month is a reflection of what goes on periodically in the realm of nature. Since the Jewish month begins with the new moon, with the appearance of the lunar crescent in the evening sky. In contrast, the Sabbath is entirely independent of the month and unrelated to the moon. Its date is not determined by any event in nature, such as the new moon, but by the act of creation. Thus, the essence of the Sabbath is completely detached from the world of space. The meaning of the Sabbath is to celebrate time rather than space. Six days a week, we live under the tyranny of things of space, and on the Sabbath, we try to become attuned to holiness and time. You're not unmuted yourself. I, I've unmuted myself now, apologies. Um, so what is sort of the idea of Shabbat here? What is Heschel emphasizing about the notion of Shabbat? Well, it's time over space. That's clearly what his theme is. Right, and that's the Shabbat is is about about time, right? It's somehow about the sanctification of time. It's not about some kind of social experience, um, but it's about some kind of like almost metaphysical idea of of time as something that we're supposed to sanctify. Right, versus the uh, other holidays are determined by by nature. It's the new, it's the moon that determines the, the dates of times that when we have these holidays. So he's creating that distinction. Yeah, though it seems like a little bit of a fuzzy distinction between you know the the creation of the moon or the time of the moon and, and the notion of creation itself as a thing of nature. Yeah, I mean, it's measuring the number of days that are based on the sun or the earth circling the sun. So it's still based on nature. It's just not, it's just a fixed thing. And it's somewhat arbitrary in that you don't see a difference necessarily in where the sun is, you know, every seven days, the way you might, the way you would see the moon every 30 days or however many days. But it's still based on a, on a natural cycle. And also, as, as you know, so a lot of the Shabbat laws relate to space, you know, how far you can travel on Shabbat and how you carry things between spaces on Shabbat. So you're sanctifying time, but you're affecting space with it as well. And so I think he's maybe a little bit overdrawn here, um, trying to make this, you know, binary of space of time versus space. I would I would agree with you, um, and we're gonna we're gonna think about that in terms of shemitah um, in a moment. Um, Can I just jump in with one little note? Of course. Um, it's not only that like we are focusing on time, and the other the other holidays focus on the natural world, but actually like Shabbat is supposed to get us out of the spatial world altogether for him, right? So Shabbat is 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 completely detached from the world of space, completely detached on for like the things that, that go on in in kind of the physical world. So it's even it's even not only like a kind of conceptual like prioritization of time, it's actually like space is space is the world of Malacha. That's like where you have to get away from in order to get um to get like into the idea of Shabbat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a very much a denigration of of, of space and somehow space is, is not the kind of sanctity we're looking for on, on Shabbat. All right, so now we're gonna, we're gonna switch gears um, and we're gonna move to Rob Cook's introduction to Shabbat Haaretz. So we're gonna actually look at this text again in some future classes. Probably if you're looking for a sort of philosophical or ethical account of Shemitah, this is the text that you're going to get said to first. 
Um, Rob Cook wrote this in 1909 as an introduction to a, um, a halachic text about um, sort of the way that we're going to get around Shemitah in modern Israel or Mandate Palestine at the time in terms of being able to sell the land. But he writes this like beautiful sort of philosophical introduction about what the meaning of Shemitah is such that it would necessitate potentially um, this kind of halachic compromise. Um, and he obviously the title of it is Shabbat Haaretz, so he's going to draw a lot of parallels um, between Shabbat and Shemitah. Um, so we're now looking moving towards an idea of Shemitah or Shabbat as you know something every seven years and something to be connected to the land. Um, I don't know if anyone has any questions before I jump into the text. I will say that like. Rob Cook's Hebrew and Rob Cook in English is known to be tricky. He's using a lot of sort of uh, Kabbalistic terms and concepts. So, you know, uh, that if that is a challenge, don't be afraid. All right. Um, I guess from what I can see on here, Avimori, would you like to take uh, this first paragraph? In Hebrew or English? I think in English. Okay. The individual shakes off mundane routine frequently every week. Shabbat comes and so does rest. The soul begins to shed her harsh chains. The Lord is, he quotes, the Lord has given you rest from your sorrow and trouble and from the hard service that you were made to serve, close quote. This is a holy day when the innate inclination of the people for a godly life emerges from its hiddenness and is a sign for the people that its soul treasure contains within it the need and the ability to rejoice in God in the delight of the divine. This is concentrated in the point of the extra soul that dwells within each one of the people's children. All right, we're going to stop there. Um, so what is this vision of Shabbat? What is it emphasizing? How is it different than, than Heschel's? And this one seems in some ways to fit more with, I think, how we tend to, to, uh, to think about Shabbat, that by giving us a chance to get away from not so much space, but from work, from electronics, from manipulations, it lets us be a little bit more, just think about who we really are he wants us to think about who we really are in the sense of, you know, what is our godlike or godly qualities and our holy qualities. Um, I think other people might just think of it more like, you know, I can think about, you know, what are my priorities in life or that kind of thing. Um, but it, it gives you a chance to, to stop all the busyness in our, in our modern world to, uh, to focus a little bit more on who we are, what's important. Yeah, and we get the kind of idea of of some, something changes about about you know about the soul of the individual um, as a, you know again that's you know maybe compared to Heschel we don't get the sense of like we're escaping some some kind you know time we're escaping routine mundane routine and we're and we're you know kind of being freed to some concept of of rest um and you know the true ability of the soul to like rejoice in god all right so now we're going to move to rob cook's discussion of shemitah um which again for him is going to be intrinsically connected um to shabbat because of how this has to move i'm going to read this paragraph what Sabbath does for the individual, Shemitah does for the nation as a whole. The Jewish people, in whom the godly creative force is planted eternally and distinctively, has a special need to periodically reveal the divine light within itself with full intensity. Our mundane lives, with their toil, anxiety, anger, and competition, do not entirely suffocate this creative force. On the Shemitah, our pure inner spirit may be revealed as it truly is. 
the forcefulness that is inevitably part of our regular public lives lessens our moral refinement. So here, um, I want to ask, how is the vision of Shemitah that we see here, which we can also discuss what is that vision of Shemitah, how is it tied to Shabbat for, for Rob Cook? Well, it's interesting because the whole Jewish people has to observe every Shabbat. So in that sense, it's a little strange to think about saying that somehow what Shabbat does for our individual souls, suddenly the soul of the nation gets it because we get a year instead of a day a week. Um, but I guess he's maybe figuring that if you have a whole year where you're interacting in this way, it does affect not just you and each other Jew as Jews observing Shabbat, but somehow our national psyche or something changes too. And, and a little strange to think about it quite that way, but that seems to be what he's yeah, saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was thinking about this too, because we were kind of thinking about the this transition from the individual celebrating Shabbat to the national uh, observance of Shemitah, even though in certain ways, you know, Shemitah might only kind of affect the the farmer or the agricultural worker and not you know it we can discuss you know what effect is the fact that there's a shemitah year in israel having on us now um but um i think that like shemitah is a sort of a national concern right it requires um a national infrastructure and again this is gonna be an introduction to a work about what to do about shemitah now that there are jews inhabiting the land of Israel and doing agriculture. Um, so suddenly it takes on this kind of national character or need for national infrastructure in perhaps a way that um, that Shabbat, though it also requires a certain kind of community, is sort of done individually and it isn't part of a sort of need for a national reckoning. Harvey? So in an agricultural society, which is where the original Lord of Shemitah come from, if, you, if, if basically you're not allowed to do anything related to the land, basically the economy shuts down. So essentially, any, you, you, there is kind of restriction in any malacca that would be done in an agricultural society. But when we don't have an agricultural society, the same thing doesn't apply. You say, well, we're gonna have the land arrest, but we can do everything else. Um, it, it kind of the argument kind of breaks down a bit, um, and I think somehow or another, I, I, I'm sure he's got more to say, but I think we're underemphasizing the the issue of the land versus the nation. Yeah, he's very much. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Sarah. Well, I think for Rev Cook, right? Part of it is the land and the nation are kind of the same thing. Right. Those are not actually for him, like, are much less separable than like, am I, I don't know, in a room full of like mostly diaspora Jews that like feels like a, a complicated equation. Uh, but I think for him, the nation is the land in a certain way. And so there is a way in which when the land is kind of differently dealt with, the nation is differently dealt with because they're kind of like of the same like kind of spiritual body or something like that for him. Yeah, and I think I think one thing that I was kind of going to emphasize in this passage, and we're going to probably see it even more in the next paragraph, um, is that somehow, right, Shemitah is like affects the soul, right? Shemitah is, affects um, the person and who they are and how they experience the world in a, in a, in a really powerful way, right? The Shemitah year is where we kind of reveal our true selves. Um, so I think that there is a sense of like somehow this this change, this break, this new attitude towards the land is inextricably woven in with like, you know, the national character, moral formation, um, you know, for the soul for Rob Cook um, in a way that's that's very hard to untangle. So, so two little things. One, I think um, while obviously Shemitah would be very different in a highly a highly urban setting, modern setting than it would have been back then. 
back then they were already trying to figure some of this out because there's also the whole side of canceling loans and therefore inhibiting commerce and 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 all of that so it wasn't only the land um and then i think maybe the on the national side where it is different is with the food supply then going to be presumably so limited because of the shemitah year you do as Renana said need an infrastructure that allows for more sharing of food and more sharing of property and so in that sense, I guess as a nation, you have to kind of come together, perhaps in a way you don't have to come together quite the same way for an individual Shabbat, where you still might have to be treat your neighbor a little bit differently and let your slaves rest and all of that. But um, this really re might require a bigger, a bigger effort and, and sort of take on then in Ralph Cook's vision, this sort of national soul. Or, I just add one tiny little little linguistic point. So the 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 sort of the creativity language, as opposed to the anxiety anger competition combo, is really interesting as a Shabbat comparison because like right a certain kind of construal of what Shabbat is and what Melacha is will assume that Melacha has something to do with like producing something, right? Um, or at least a lot of Melachot have have to do with producing something. Um, you know, think about all the like complicated Makeba Patish cases of like, I've now finished the object, that's a problem. Um, but for him, right, Shemitah like almost works the opposite way. Shemitah is supposed to draw out some kind of creativity and ability to build something that you couldn't access in the normal workaday world. Um, and you are supposed to build these kinds of new structures and new ways of living. So that might be a different. Um, in a way, the like Nishama Yatera focus that he has in the initial presentation of Shabbat might be might be kind of more analogous to that, but it's a different way of thinking about Shabbat than, you know, I then I think that's sort of pretty common one of like Shabbat is about avoiding, you know, creative labor that produces something or creates something. Yeah, I I mean, this might be getting deeper into the weeds, but how much a sort of modern conception of what labor is and and whether labor is something that is oppressive or creative. Uh, might be echoing behind Rav Cook here. It's potentially an interesting thing to think about that, you know, in a sort of rabbinic conception, labor is creative. In a sort of modern conception, labor and work is often seen as oppressive and alienating and all, all that good stuff. And leisure is the time for sort of creativity. And yeah, I mean, I think that's to that, that kind of modern, modern labor theory stuff is like totally there and he's kind of you don't see it so much in the translation but like he, he he's like snuck it in a kind of halachic language by talking about it as like you know the 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 toil is like the 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 normal like is the the toil you do on whole right it's not like um so yeah he's he's got that kind of like creativity is is what you do when you're not engaged in like capitalist production um It may also be that Marshall is less freaked out about capitalist production than he is. Side note. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, so moving on to the last paragraph of the Rob Cook that we brought today. Um, Sarah, do you want to read this? Oh, oh my. Okay, sure. Um, stilling the tumult of, of social life from time to time in certain predictable ways is meant to move this nation when it is well-ordered to rise toward an encounter with the heights of its other inner moral and spiritual life. They touch the divine qualities inside them that transcend all the stratagems of the social order and that cultivate and elevate our social arrangements, bringing them toward perfection. Okay. Um, so now that we've read this Rob Cook, um, in its you know entirety for these couple paragraphs, um, what is the overall vision of Shemitah that he is putting forward here, um, and what does it make you think about the work that Shabbat is supposed to do for us versus what the work that Shemitah is supposed to do for us? Um, I mean, I think for, right. I think the reason that Rob Cook is such an interesting thinker for some of the things that Sarah and I are presenting is for him. Clearly, Shemitah is about some kind of moral progress, moral formation, um, 
you know, rising toward an encounter with the other um, and, you know, strengthening the inner moral and spiritual life. Um, but how is this maybe different than what you might have thought Shemitah is? Um, and what do you think that might mean or reflect for us about the meaning of rest and of Shabbat as well? Looks like Judy just unmuted herself. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm struck by how much Shabbat and Shemitah sound alike. Like Shemitah sounds like just a slightly enhanced version of Shabbat. Both of them focus on the soul and the elevation um, of, of personhood. Whereas I would have expected Shemitah to deal with the need of the land to rest uh, and our kind of ecological approaches these days about taking care of the land, guarding the land. Uh, and that is totally absent as far as I can see. Um, so I'm, I'm a little, surprised by that and uncomfortable to the extent that it's really left out. Uh, so two sort of initial comments, though, well, maybe other people have want to chime in. I admit to, I'm not a biblical philologist. I don't think there's anything um, directly connecting the word Shemitah and the word Shabbat, but I don't know about the origins of the word Shemitah. If somebody else does, uh, please chime in. Um, and in terms of some of these kind of ideas of care for the land um, and sort of the environmental or ecological piece. We will get to some of that later tonight. Um, I think in 1909, that kind of attitude towards, towards the land is just a little less present. Um, what the land represented for Rob Cook at that point in this like early Zionist phase of, of trying to kind of rebuild the land, trying to make the land productive in a place where, where Jews could settle and live. I think is very different than um, our worries today about you know keeping the planet intact. I, but I'm not speaking only about our worries. I mean, biblically, we're commanded to take care and to guard the land and to give the land rest. Um, and there is an aspect to Shemitah that kind of uh, gives you a perspective of a land of having its own needs and dignity and need to survive so it can keep producing almost like an entity of its own. And that I don't find here. Yeah, no, I would, I would agree. I think that at least, you know, what we're bringing here is very focused on how Shemitah and the, and the, and the observance of Shemitah is effective for the national character into you know moral formation the spiritual life and not necessarily about the good of the land in and of itself i had another thought if i might yeah. thinking about israel and the very many fights over shabbat public shabbat observance and the need to keep you know no traffic in certain places no buses running it becomes more than an individual observance there is an adamant attitude that it really is a nation being, you know, ex it's a national expression of some sort. And that brings it closer to what's being talked about here in terms of Shemitah. I think that's a, a good criticism of, um, of the distinction being drawn. I don't by know if it's criticism, it may be just an evolution of how it you know, it, the function it serves, but I see it. Yeah, but I, but I think that Shabbat observance, um, and even though it, it maybe can kind of be observed by an individual on an island by themselves, you know, practically, functionally, it creates community, and it creates a sort of national community standard and a national sensibility. I think the way it might be different than Shemitah is that it you, you know, if you're not in that nation, you can observe Shabbat, right? While Shemitah is really focused only on this land and it really requires sort of national buy-in by everyone. 
Um, well, you know, if you have to spend Shabbat on an island once a year, you can observe Shabbat. Um, but I, I, but they are, I think, closer together than um, than maybe the distinction that Rob Cook originally drew about. Well, Shabbat's the individual, Shemitah's the nation, and I think, you know, to kind of bring bring Heschel back in, you know, Heschel's like, oh, Shabbat's about space and not, you know, it's about time and not about space. Well, Shemitah kind of complicates that of like, it is the Shabbat like thing and it's all about space, but how is it doing, how does it reveal that Shabbat is actually about certain kind of community and certain kinds of spaces and how Shemitah is also about time? Harvey? Yeah, so to get uh, back. So um, yeah, I, I was just thinking a lot of interesting comments there. Just, just to add to the last one, thinking about how the land can be seen in terms of time versus space, and I'm not sure. I know you're going to touch on that, uh, but I'm not sure how the land can be somehow resting in time. I'm not, I don't. I don't. Can't grasp that how the land might be is resting in time and that it has a year of lying fallow and just trying to understand the question. Yeah, because in that, in that space we talk about is the nature, we, we say, Heschel talks about nature and um, well, the land is all about nature. So how is it about time? I'm not sure I, I follow that completely. Sarah, did you want to jump yeah, in? Yeah, I mean, I think one answer is it just isn't about time. It's about, like for Rob Cook, it's about the social, which I guess maybe has some sort of time elements, but is basically just a different phenomenon, right? I mean, I think if, if on the other hand though, Shemitah is about resting the land every seven years, not resting the land when the land needs to rest. Is not the same thing, right? So you can imagine a, 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 a practice that was like, well, every time you indicate, like you see the following three things go on with the soil, like then that's the year you need to rest, which would be like maybe akin to like, well, when you see the moon looking like this, then that's the moment that, that you know, the Rosh Chodesh comes or whatever. Um, but that's not what happens. It's you count seven and at the end of seven, that's it. Um, so there is, I guess, maybe that's a that's a time, maybe that's a kind of time boundedness um, in a certain way, even if it's a little different than, uh, yeah, maybe that's a, maybe that's a kind of time boundedness that's more parallel to Heschel, even if it's not a rejection of quote unquote a rejection of space or of the world of space, because um, it's a reimagining of it rather than a kind of rejection of the land. I think that's a really useful way to think about it. I, I, and I do think there's just a ton, you know, you can't really look at Shemitah and not think about Shabbat in certain ways. Um, but to say that there, that somehow that space isn't being sanctified in this process um, seems to be missing a key, a key point. <laughs> so just um, trying to get back to, you know, what does Shemitah actually mean? So the art school reminds it means release. It's actually the the term seems to be more used in Devarim, where it's talking about releasing the debts and you know beware the seventh year and don't you know that you don't lend the person, because when I first looked at in Vayikra where Shemitah comes up, it's actually not called Shemitah, right? Yeah. So the seventh year is actually a Shabbat. So it's uh, it's very directly linked, even though we use the term shemitah for the whole for the whole process. Um, and again, while the, while the philology, I guess, of shabbat and shemitah are different roots, shabbat being more stopping and shemitah being at least as they define it here, releasing. Um, it, it it it's all pretty clearly pretty clearly linked. And trying to think about a little bit about how you get a whole. How is Shemitah different than Shabbat, leaving aside the ecology aspect that the land, by definition, is resting because the law is that you can't plant. So, the, you, the, but in terms of what Ralph Cook's getting at is what's happening to our soul. I guess maybe he's imagining that if you have a whole year where you have, you, you know, 
not just one day a week where you could sort of work around it and get all your other stuff done and and sort of keep it smooth here for a whole year you got to figure out your food you got to figure out what are you going to do with all your time because you're not working the land you're not doing as much commerce you're not lending money um and so that that release of your times for a longer span probably creates a whole different psychology or from rob cook's perspective a whole different impression on your soul so i think maybe where he's going Yeah, I just can I just jump in with with two points. The first is on the the linguistic piece, right? One of the things we we drew out a little bit for you last week is the differences between the Vayikra statement and the uh, the Dvarim statement of the laws of Shemitah. And one thing we saw is right the the Dvarim version ends up with a more kind of social picture and a more financially oriented picture. So there's a way, and and the first version, which like leans more heavily on the Shabbat language as opposed to Shemitah language, and is much more about like count the seven years and now the land gets to rest, um, which might be kind of closer to Shabbat or at least the Shabbat we know. Um, it's almost like Rav Cook is like hanging his hat on the Devarim version for for Shemitah, and then I then I want to ask the question, right? Like the Devarim is is like you know, maybe this is more Kfira than anyone's comfortable with, but bear with me. Um, that Dvarim is in a certain sense offering a different and, and kind of changed picture of what we got in Vayikra. And so then I kind of want to ask you, and this is where I, I start to sort of turn back on, like, how do we think about what Shabbat is? What is the Dvarim, what is like the analogous kind of rethinking of what Shabbat is um, look like? Like, what would it be to actually think about Shabbat not as like, okay, at you know 527 that's when i've got to turn off my oven and like think about how to you know feed my guests that are coming but what if i actually thought about it as like a kind of big social rethinking so i think you know he prompts us to 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 kind of go to that that next level um or at least to think about like what would be the the sort of devarian version of chavez not to get you know not to get too far down the wrong path um sort of prompts us to to think about that in a in a really interesting way um on your second point Richard I was uh um I, I was talking to um some relatives of my husband who uh, live in in Yerushalayim and they have like an elaborate garden and it's like a whole to-do because of Shemitah and they they sort of said offhand like Shemitah is like Yom Kippur for a whole year for a gardener and it was such a like striking remark because you know I was like not I was thinking about preparing this class I wasn't thinking about like what am I going to do with my plants, um, but yeah there was a kind of I have to restructure my life because like actually what I used to do every morning was go out and water all the plants and now I don't do that so now what am I gonna like what is my relationship to that so it is a a big kind of psychological re repositioning and rethinking that has to go on if you're gonna do this, Harvey. So you just described the gardener not being able to do all the tasks uh, for a year, but isn't that what Shabbat is? If it, on Shabbat, the gardener can't water. We can't water, we can't weed, we don't do any of those things. So for a whole year, we don't do it. So that seems to describe, at least from an agricultural point of view, we, you know, we talk, touched upon debts, but certainly from the agricultural point of view, uh, it's, it is, it's like Shabbat. There's, you can't, there's nothing, Except you can still, you, you are still allowed to do certain things. I mean, you not you can't prune or whatever or water, but if there's food there, you, you're still allowed to take it or anyone can take it. So it's not completely analogous, but it's very, very similar. Yeah. And also I think the remission of debts stuff in a certain way is also like, the kind of broad prohibition on commercial activity of, of, of lots of different kinds, right? And that even gets to thinking about like Shabbat is structuring space. I've heard um, a few a few people, um, including my my teacher in Chaburta, Joel Goldstein, often says that uh, the kind of obsession in Hilchot Shabbat with Hosa'ah, with like transferring things between domains, is actually about keeping you out of the commercial space um, because that's like where you would be schlepping things to and from. Um, so that maybe this is also a similar kind of kind of maneuver. Yeah. I mean, I think those are, yeah, those are some really good reflections on 
how what in this sort of rough cook world does Shabbat and, and how do they reflect one another and, and distinguish, but also you kind of can't, um, you can't talk about one without, without the other. Um, should we move on uh, to some Rambam uh, before, before we close out the night? I'm always in favor of moving on to some Rambam, but that's my gates are hard. So, um, okay. So we're gonna we're gonna shift gears to the Rambam, and we're gonna look at the basically the last two halachot in his treatment of Shemitah. Um, and why do I want to show you the last two halachot? Um, in part because I think they're kind of interesting on their own, but also because often in the in the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam will give you some of his kind of more philosophical musings, either at the very beginning of his treatment of a subject or most often at the very end. Um, so there's there's a kind of formal structure to how he uh, how he approaches this kind of stuff. Um, and so you get Wherever the Rambam leaves you, you want to, you want to, like, at the end of uh, his treatment of a subject, you want to ask yourself, like, why did he, why did he leave me with that? What does he want to tell me? Um, and this is, this is a, a good case, I think, for that. Um, like, the, the classic one of this is the end of Mikvaot, um, which, which is a, which is a, you know, a good one. But there are lots of, um, lots of these ending sections as a kind of key to like, what does the Rambam think is important about this mitzvah? Um, and so he's gonna talk about the Levi'im as the, the baseline, uh, sort of the, as the place we wanna end up. And I think because he's, he's really ending on the discussion of the land returning to its kind of, or like uh, returning not to its original owners, let's say, but like becoming kind of re rearranged um, after it might have been handed handed down. And there's a way in which the Levi'im are kind of not originally part of that in the same way because they don't have a land, they don't have land that's given to them. Um, so when the land kind of all reverts back to its original state, they don't have anything because they, they didn't get anything in the original position. And so that prompts around to ask, well, okay, like is there some way in which they are kind of left out of what's going on here? Um, and why on earth were they left out of, of being given a piece of the land? And what does, that mean, what, what does that mean for us? So that's the question that he's interested in treating here. Um, and I think it's gonna give us a different model of like who is doing the resting and when, um, and, and maybe will prompt us to think a little bit of our, about our like space time kinds of questions. Um, can I get someone to read? Uh, Ramam writes beautiful Hebrew. So can we get someone to read in, maybe in Hebrew? If somebody's comfortable. Richard, go ahead. <laughs> so what I one thing I want you to see here is that there's a kind of interesting parallel between the way he's going to describe what the Levi'im are supposed to be doing and what what actually really what they're supposed to be not doing and what Rav Cook thinks we the nation doesn't do in the Shemitah, right? So if you um if you remember the you know, Rev Cook thinks that we're not supposed to be involved in the language of in the world of like worry and competition um and and sort of struggle. And that's exactly what the Raman thinks the Levim are like kind of by not being attached to the land are not involved in. They don't go to war, um, but they don't also kind of have to fight for things with their physical bodies. They don't have to do the same kind of like backbreaking potentially agricultural work that everyone else is doing. And that frees them up to think about theological questions and to engage with God in a different sort of way. So the way in which actually, right, if the Shemitah is something we, the nation does every seven years, actually the, the VM are doing it all the time. 
And so we've now moved out of the realm of thinking about it as like, okay, we count seven, seven years and then boom, we have to do this. There's somebody who's modeling this way of life all the time or a group of people, right? Even a whole like society of people or these whole family structures or something like that. Questions, thoughts about that before we move on. This is turning us a little away from Shemita, but just one of the things I was thinking about is like the Levimas are also sort of skirting you know, the curse of Adam of having to, you know, do backworking labor to make bread and, and sort of getting around that like kind of curse of humanity by living a life where, you know, they, they're going to serve God. I mean, this is also very wrong, you know, going to contemplate theology or whatever, but they're not going to have to do the kind of agricultural work, um, which might also then make us think about what is, what is Shemitah doing in terms of that original story in, in Breshit. Yeah, I think that's great, right? And like, there's a way in which right, Heschel wants Shabbat to be about creation. Um, and there's a way in which Shemitah is about creation, but it's like about kind of undoing, like Shemitah is about like Breshit Bet, not Breshit Olive creation. And like, how do I deal with Breshit Bet creation and how it goes wrong? Um, as opposed to kind of Heschel Shabbat, which is about Breshit Olive. Yeah, I think I think that's, that's great. Um, yeah, if the Ramam, like the Ramam is a, is, is a Levi at heart, I think, and we'll see that in the, in the next section. Um, I mean, if he's not, not by blood, at least as far as I know. Um, okay, let us, can we, can we scroll down a little? Richard, you want to just finish this? It's not, it's not super long. all right, so I said the Rambam is a Levi at heart, but the Rambam also thinks anyone can be a Levi at heart in the sense that the Rambam thinks there is some way for the, the Leviim kind of get biblically, get kind of an ex, uh, a new way of living that isn't tied to the land. But you too, if you do your intellectual, your appropriate kind of theological contemplation, you too can have this life that is set apart from um from from labor really from productive labor um or at least like kind of physically productive labor and just is about contemplation and there's an expectation then that god will provide for what it is you you hope to need or you you will get um and that kind of leap of faith which is something we talked a little bit about last week is kind of parallel to the leap of faith that you might you might be taking in shemitah but you might be taking it all the time so some of the nosi kalim kind of try to explain like what on earth is he actually talking about here um, and and do it in kind of, I, I, I don't know how to put it, like firmer terms than I think maybe the rabbi himself might put it, but they imagine someone who who is learning all the time and is paid, whose, whose life is financed by staka basically, um, and who is relying on God and they're sort of by proxy the community to to provide for, for that person's needs. Um, but th that opens up a set of theological opportunities and, you know, intellectual theological opportunities, spiritual opportunities that would not be possible otherwise. So for the Rambam in the end, right, the mitzvah of Shemitah is like, you know, to answer the question of like, why does the Rambam start here? The mitzvah of Shemitah is about the land and is about all of the other stuff to do with remission of debts and all the rest of it. But it also provides um, or the Levi'im provides sort of through it a model of a kind of spiritual life that actually anybody can access, um, including potentially, right, like not only Jews. Um, yeah, uh, Harvey. 
So is the Rambam quoting all this just to explain how we should be behaving in the Shemitah and we should be like the Levium? You say that they said at the beginning, we're just there modeling this behavior? Yeah, I think that that's what he's trying to do. And I think that's why he ends here, right? Because he he's, like I said, there's a sort of, you can read across the Mishnah Torah to see that often at the end, he's going to give you like a, a sort of more like mode. He's going to move from like Paskening to a kind of broader picture. And so, yeah, he's given you like, I don't know, 12 prakim of like, you can do this with your vegetables and not that. Um, but he'll end here, I think, because he wants you to see these, this, the Levi'im as a biblical model, but also to know that you can access that model even if you're not um, trying to decide, like, what am I going to do with my plants this year? You can access that model through a, a contemplative path um, or a spiritual path also, even if you're not, um, like, there were no Havamita in the first place that you were going to be doing Shemitah because, like, you live, you know, in America or wherever, um, right? Or you, you don't live in the land or or maybe you're you're not uh, not engaged in that kind of, Kind of agricultural work. Hey, I just want to comment, comment on Judy's. She says talk about knowing seeing call and learning also not going to be seems praiseworthy. But isn't Rambam often quoted as uh, the source to say that sitting around and just learning and is not is is not acceptable. He's he's often quoted. Am I right? Not, yeah. So. Okay, this is a lot, this is a different shear. Um, the, the short answer is that the Rambam, there's a big machloket between Rambam scholars about this because like all good, the, the, the important principle, like the, the first law of Rambam is that for every Rambam, there's an equal and opposite Rambam. Um, and this is, this, is the, this is true here in a certain sense because um, there's a lot of debate about what he means in the, in the last few chapters of the Morning of Bechlin, but it seems like one thing he, he thinks is that it would be much better if you, um, if you kind of could sleepwalk through your daily interactions with practical life um, and just be contemplating God. And then in other places, he's like not such a fan of people who are kind of dependent on uh, the, the sort of charity apparatus of the community. So those two things seem like they might be in conflict, but at minimum, if you're doing like, you know, he, he talks about like talking to your spouse, talking to your kids, like providing for your family, all of that stuff that you should be doing, you should be paying as little attention to it as possible um, in his mind, if we, if we believe the model that's at the end of the Moria. So that, that creates some, some challenges, I would say, um, but it's consistent with what he's saying here, which is you can access the kind of spiritual power that was given to the Levi'im as an inherited gift. If only you get yourself out of the business of the kind of cunning and competitiveness uh, and, and physical labor that seems to characterize other work, you just get out of that business completely, then you can access that thing that the Levi'im are given as a kind of portion from God. And so, maybe to, to soften a little bit the like, oh, well, is he just saying you should like give up on your you know professional life and, and sit in kolal? Uh, he's really interested in, in thought, right? You're supposed to spend your time contemplating God instead of maybe like contemplating the way to make the most money. And it's not so much that you forget about, you know, you don't do the practical concerns. I mean, I, there are ways to read the Rambam there, but I think what you could say is it's not that, you know, it's that you get out of the like comp competition and cunning and how to, how to game the system and you do what you need to do. So you like have your, your food and you provide for your family, but really you're, mental energy is spent on, on on contemplating God and not on like how to get the next business deal. So it's a little different than, you know, right. Give he's up your doing, entire career and, you know, rely on charity, but rather like, you know, the, the point of your life is not to be a businessman, but it is to be, uh, you know, a philosopher, even if you, you know, have to do some practical things on the side. Yeah. Um, I think in the interest of time, even though this is like, one of the great fun conversations have about the Rambam. We will uh, we'll scroll we'll scroll down a little and talk about um, 
Lori's Lori's piece. So just to give you uh, just like two sentences of background, Lori Zoloth, who's a professor of Jewish ethics at the University of Chicago, um, was in the year 2014 president of the American Academy of Religion, which is the kind of major uh, scholarly society for people who study religion. Um, and the main function of that organization, or one of the primary functions, is to hold a very large annual conference, um, which you know, brings thousands of people to talk about their research in religions. And it's, you know, as, as a lot of large conferences are, it's like a big operation in a hotel. People fly from all over the world, um, you know, and there's a whole kind of economic apparatus that, that follows that conference, um, or at least does in, in non-COVID times. And so when Professor Zoloth was pr president of the AAR, she gave a, a, a speech about um, the kind of impending climate doom um, that, we, that we all may face and suggests one thing that the American Academy of Religion might be able to do in order to address this problem. So um, can I get somebody just to read this quickly? Sure, I'll go ahead. Let's... Great, please do. Second, we need to think. Here, I'm going to read from my own screen. Second, we need to think of, of this group of us, for we are ten thousand people, the size of a small city, with the power of speech. This is a problem of collective action. The biggest problem we as teachers have faced as a species, and it can seem utterly overwhelming. But we can make decisions at uh, the AAR scale. Here's one idea from my Jewish tradition. So she's Jewish. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, hoped a, I hope a good one among the many that will be original annual meeting. We could create an AAR sabbatical year. What would this mean? I mean, once in every six years, we would pause, following the biblical cycle. We would choose to not meet at a huge annual meeting, uh, which we take over a city. Every year, each participant going to the meeting uses a quantum of carbon that is more than considerable. Air travel, staying in hotels, all this creates a way of living on the earth that is carbon intensive would be otherwise. One instead of coming together, we spread out over the land, as it were, and read our papers to one another on universities and institutions. What if we could meet, each of us in our own city, and turn to the faces and needs of our fellow citizens? What if on that day, we talked to poor, volunteer in local high schools and community colleges, or the prison, the hospital, the military base, the church, mosque, synagogue, and temple, at a place that is not your own, worked at planting an orchard or a garden, served food to the poor, offered our teaching, offered to learn, what if we turn to our neighbor, the woman who cleans the toilets, the man who sweeps the sidewalks, including them in the university to which we are responsible? We would then be actively making the interruption in our lives, saying by this act, I will sacrifice to save my planet. I'm not suggesting far from it that we do more than try this in seven years when the sabbatical year comes again, 2021. Okay. So I think one one thing that 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 this proposal does um, is offer a model of like what we could do. It's a it's a sort of version of the Rambam saying you can take up the mode of the Levi'im whenever you want. You can take up the mode of Shmita whenever you want in order to pursue some some set of ends that you think might be important. And that set of ends for her is not only ecological, right, but it's also um, social. It's also trying to get you know, turn us towards our fellow citizens, turn us towards not only our, our colleagues in a kind of arcane scholarly discussion, um, but also to, to a much, much broader audience. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, there's a really powerful proposal. Um, I will end with the following note, which I think will, will help us sort of launch into next week. Um, some of you may be wondering what happened to the AR in 2021. Um, and and you will you will be not shocked to learn that basically what happened is that the conference ran in a hybrid format um, because of COVID, um, but that this proposal didn't at the time when she offered it gain all that much traction um, as a practical matter, and part of the reason was because there's a lot of money at stake in these discussions, um, but part of the reason was also because there were some sort of uh, potential drawbacks or, or problems in not having the meeting. And there was a way in which actually one of the things that happens at the meeting is that it's a kind of important networking place, as you might imagine, but it's also a place where young people in the field interview for their jobs. 
And so there was a kind of sense that this wouldn't work because it would harm the people who are kind of at the lowest rank in the, in the totem pole of, of the field and wouldn't be able to kind of uh, do the work they would need to do in order to, be get, jo to get jobs in what is a kind of tough, uh, tough position, you know, tough situation in, in academia. So there is a way in which this proposal was both audacious and it didn't totally deal with all of the needs of the kind of broad group. And there was a there was a sort of vulnerable part of the let's say the the in group right the scholars themselves as opposed to the kind of broad apparatus of support staff who were not well served by this proposal, um, or at least didn't didn't feel well served by this proposal. Um, and I think that brings out some of the tension that we'll be discussing next week, where we start to think about like what are the what are the potential um, problems that we might encounter when we sort of try to put this on the ground. Um, I saw Harvey and then Judy, but I will also recognize that it is 9.01. So I think we will we will perhaps call it a formal close, but I would love to hear uh, what you both think and we can stay on the Zoom for a moment. So Judy, Harvey. Go, first. go ahead, Judy. Okay, uh, it just struck me that the kind of issues that grew out of her proposal seem to echo the kind of issues we talk about when we talk about the practical application of Shemitah. Uh, it doesn't work as well. We've come up with laws to go around it because it doesn't work the way we expect it to. It's a great idea, ideally speaking, so was hers, but the practical application has a lot of problems with it. So I, I found a real echo there. Exactly. I, and there's sort of an idealistic vision and a beautiful vision that she lays out. You right. know, we'll, 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 you know, we'll go in and, you know, feed the hungry instead. But wait, what about there, there are going to be some people in our own midst who are going to go hungry or are going to be made right. more vulnerable and we have to take care. Do we, and we have to take care of them. Do we have to take care of them first? Um, these are exactly the kind of questions we're going to explore next week. Yeah, so just kind of picking up on that, um, her suggestion, I was kind of really intrigued by it because we know that universities, uh, professors after a certain time get a sabbatical, they get a year off. Um, I don't think anybody can get the, every, the idea of shutting down everything every seven years has some practical uh, problems. But I mean, if everybody had an opportunity uh, and to, to, to have a year off from the job, whatever they do, even the, the person who sweeps the streets and even the person who works in the restaurant and the person who works in a, as a scientist or whatever, everybody to get an opportunity to have a year off to, to, um, to, to, to serve in some manner, to serve uh, wherever. I mean, we won't get into specifics, but to serve in some manner. Um, but then the practicality is, it's like, it's, I'll just give you one analogy and I'll end up here. It's like when they said, well, we need to raise the minimum wage. And there's always a problem with doing that. It's an economic problem, real world economic problem doing that. So giving anybody a year or off every seven would certainly have some problems, but it, it's something to think about. I think it's really something very interesting to think about. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just even interesting just to think about like what is, you know, the purpose of, of the sabbatical year for the academic, right? It's that you get a chance to go off and, 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 and think and contemplate and work on your research without the worries of the administrative role of the academic or whatever it is that's, you know, you know, teaching and all, all the things that might distract you. And so kind of actually it, it kind of links into at least the Rambam's imagination of what Shemitah is supposed to be of this, like it, you know, if you're able to live the life of Shemitah, you can kind of free yourself from toil and strife and struggle. Yeah, I think there's something really interesting about the individual version versus the social version, because right, the, the individual version, um, especially in, in academia, which is where I spend most of my time, um, right, the, the like, the individual version is a kind of like turning inward and you know you, you get the the email away message that is like i will not answer my email for the next year you know see you later um it's often you know more polite than that but that's that's what it means um that's a turning inward and what she's describing and and in a certain way what rub cook is describing is a turning to a different social reality um that may actually be kind of a turning outward as opposed to a turning inward or a turn, turning to like a differently arranged social relations or something. 
Um, but I think it might nonetheless be the case that our social fabric would look a lot different if everybody, every you know, X number of years got a year off in a way that was like economically tenable for you know people. I mean, you know, I, I'm not the public policy scholar who's going to come up with the, the economics of how to do that, but I think that actually would have a social effect, even if the social effect it doesn't come from always everybody taking the taking the year off together in the way you're like a rough cook is going to imagine. Okay, um, I think we will leave it at that. Next week, we will talk a little bit about um, the sort of practicalities of, of doing this in the, um, in the early shuv and the ethical and, and social problems that kind of came up as a result of that. Looking forward to it. It's a good source sheet. So hope to see you all there. See you soon. Thank you all. Thank you, Ms. Sager. Thank and thank you, Ms. Stein, for this wonderful class. And to all of you here for participating in Drisha's learning community on Zoom, on Facebook Live, and on Drisha Live. We really love learning with you. I uh, just want to throw out a little reminder that uh, we are in the home stretch for applying to our winter's mon. The deadline is Monday. So if you or someone you know is interested in joining us, God willing, in person in New York City, uh, the last week of the year and the first week of the year, up to you, you could do one, either, both, neither. Um, we, we would love to have you there. Um, and until next time, please be well. <laughs>